0: Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips.
1: Uh, We have with us uh, Jamie Rome, who is the head of the Storm Surge Unit, Uh, Michael Brennan, who is the branch chief for the Hurricane Specialists, And of course, Ken Graham, the director of the Hurricane Center. All three of these have spoken to us earlier, but a lot has happened since the the time they spoke. So we're going to turn it over to Ken to give us an update on what's happening in their world. Ken?
2: Oh, Bill, thanks for that introduction. Hello, everybody again. Definitely good to to talk to everybody today. It's what a start to the season. And uh, Dan Brown put together some, uh, put together a couple of graphics here I wanted to share with everybody. So I'm going to take over the screen and see what happens here if it works. So I'm going to present my screen. You all should see it now. And I'm going to go ahead and present this here. So, yeah, looking at the season so far, I mean, through August 11th, nine named storms already in the 2020 season, two major hurricanes, um, six straight year with at least one named storm prior to June 1st. So active start for the season, four tropical storm strikes, uh, two hurricane landfalls. You can see the tracks on the map right there. And um, interesting enough, it's uh, only – august 11th so we have a ways to go this was the previous this was the previous seasonal outlook and you can kind of look at some of the values here but i'm going to show the updated one this is brand new from august 6th so one thing to think about um you know, looking at uh, looking at above normal uh, season, 85% chance of that. So, name storms, 19 to 25 named storms. The Climate Prediction Center looking at these seasonal outlooks. So, uh, busy season as we've been uh, advertising for a while, and it looks like we're definitely a fast start and a busy season will will continue. And looking at the names, um, I had to add a couple of these uh, additional ribbons on here to make sure we got Issa-Eas as well. You can see the rest of the the names that we have uh, for the season. So well into the names, already the the looking done with the ice storm, looking at the J storm next. So things going really quickly for us. I thought this was interesting. This was put together by the the Weather Service Forecast Office in Corpus Christi, and this is basically the, the coastal areas and the inland areas that have seen you know, tropical watches and warnings through August 4th. So it's pretty fascinating that you see much of the U.S. Atlantic and the Gulf Coast have already had tropical watches and warnings. You see Hannah, Cristobal, Isaias, uh, Bertha, you know, Isaias going up the entire East Coast, uh, Faye up there as well, and Arthur. So, you know, quite a few areas have already seen uh, tropical watches and warnings. So it's interesting to, to see that kind of map this early in the season. And if you think about where we are versus where we should be, on average, I think this is interesting. On average, the third named storm forms around August 10th with the first hurricane occurring Uh, around that date which is which is pretty interesting so well ahead of schedule this season for sure and if you look at where we are today uh, we have the majority of the season uh, left to go so here we are in mid-august and you can see how uh, the cumulative number of systems so once you get it 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 accumulates for the rest of the year Um, you can see we got we got a look here the takeaway here is we got a fast start but we we're, we're just getting into the peak. We're gonna be getting into the peak. We got a long way to go uh, this season. So here's where we are. Um, a lot of you have seen this, um, this map, uh, the graph here, and you know how it spikes. Um, after that with time let's put the rest of it so this is what remains for the hurricane season 2020 so preparedness is is everything we're just getting started um and you know we're getting uh, everybody ready for it as we start getting into the, the peak part of it so preparedness is everything i mean really one of the big takeaways we've been letting everybody know is yep fast start got a long way to go but uh, actions early actions preparedness is, is everything having that kit early avoid the rush um are there any things you need to add to, to your kit this year? Um, if you look at the guidance, the CDC guidance, the FEMA guidance, you know, adding, adding, uh, you know, everything from masks to, to other uh, safety items in your kit is something that we have to look at uh, your documents and, you know, if there's any changes in, in some of your local uh, preparedness efforts on, on how you evacuate, where you go, start looking into that now before you get into the peak. It's just tough to start preparing. It's tough to start um, the beginning process of that preparation and planning when the when the hurricane's headed for you. So just a reminder, we got to do these type of, of things very, very early. So anyway, I wanted to um, just kick it off with a few things like that just to get our Our juice is flowing here and wanted to see if uh, Jamie or uh, Mike, if you have anything else to add before we start uh, opening up
3: the floor. Yeah, Ken, this is Mike. Um, I'll just add a couple of quick things. I'll just mention that, you know, we do have a system we are watching out in the the central tropical Atlantic that we have a high chance of formation here in the next day or two and could, could go on and become a tropical depression. Uh, later today, even, uh, and uh, head generally toward the Lesser Antilles, but it looks like it might remain north of those islands before conditions become a little less conducive for, for development later in the week. But, uh, you know, the, the the map showing how much activity we've had and, and the fact that most of the Gulf and U.S. East Coast have experienced at least some either peripheral or direct impacts from some sort of tropical storm or even hurricane this year is a just a reminder that, you know, everybody can still be affected again. And especially for people that have affect, been affected by, you know, sort of the periphery of a system or a weaker system that didn't have a lot of direct impacts, so it doesn't mean you can let your guard down for the rest of the season. As we are likely to have you know, very high levels of activity, uh, potentially multiple storms going on at once. Uh, so it, it's going to get really busy here in the next few weeks. And so this is, again, that's this sort of lull that Bill mentioned. You know, we're in a little bit of a quiet period for the U.S. This is the time when you want to get that plan in place. Figure out what you're going to do. Get your supplies so that you're ready for when the when the the higher levels of activity come in the next few weeks to several weeks.
2: Yeah, something else. I wanted to mention this once again. Um, you know, we had a, a couple of new items last time we talked about the the two new things that we were uh, looking at this year for new from the Hurricane Center. Anyway, is that 60 hour point on the map? Um, that is really going to help us with, um, interesting enough, you, you think about uh, adding another dot on the map is helping us not only with, uh, you know, the actual uh, track and intensity, but storm surge. We actually are able to to look at the the structure, the size, the wind radii, and it, as as many of us have talked about before, it's all about the, the size, the forward speed. That structure has so much to do uh, with the storm surge. So we're excited to be able to uh, see that in action. But I think the other thing that's exciting that we uh, – The experimental peak storm surge map is we're getting tons of good feedback on it. So if you have comments, please let us know. But it's it's just a quick and dirty way to see what what is the potential, the maximum storm surge that's possible, high tide, along the coastline it's a fast easy map you can use it in your presentations you can use it in social media it's just a great way to to get the information out then you can dive in to see what the inundation is and some of the actual details there so those are the a couple new things we have for this year just a reminder and I think so far we're getting some pretty good comments um, on those so I wanted to remind everybody of that as well.
1: Jamie you got anything to add?
4: yeah you know um Ken Ken nailed it um we've got um several version new versions of of slosh um, running to take advantage of these advancements from the hurricane specialist unit or or Mike's unit um the the 60 hour point uh, made a pretty significant uh, impact upon upon slosh and our real-time capabilities but we're also utilizing um, real-time information from the hurricane specialist unit regarding the structure um in some of our experimental versions of slosh and p search, which run alongside of um, the operational versions and those are showing um dramatic improvements especially at the extended ranges you know we've heard uh, feedback that um uh, emergency managers need us to extend the lead time on our predictions from from 48 hours to 72 And early experimentation in house is very very encouraging especially as we take better and more uh, more direct input from the human forecaster to to drive how SLOSH and P surge uh, build its uh, scenarios.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. The uh, I was thinking back fifteen years ago, you know, maybe twenty years ago, you're getting you're you're getting the accuracies now out at those time frames that uh, are are at least as good if not better than what they were 20 years ago when we were just doing a 24 hour to 36 hour storm surge forecast so it makes sense to push it out to the envelope
4: yeah as you get to those longer lead times um you know track and intensity have always been well known as a major driver and uncertainty um, but what few people realize is the structure of the storm really starts to dominate the uncertainty as you sort of push beyond a, a day or two and so um getting you know, these storms come in different sizes and shapes some are lopsided with all the winds on the east side and, and, you know versus the west side or vice versa um some are big some are small um so you know pushing beyond the traditional um the pressure wind relationship um that has historically been used in, in building these realistic structures in, in slosh and pieces are just really Helping at um, those longer lead times, and the thing is, um, you know, I don't. The Hurricane Center is really modest, um, so I will brag on their behalf. Um, but the human forecasters just absolutely clean the clock of all the spaghetti models, or dynamical models, or global models, or whatever you know, whatever we want to call them today. Um, not only in the traditional metrics of, of track and intensity, but in structure too like the storm structure that the human forecaster comes up with just absolutely crushes um the available atmospheric models so by directly pulling that information into slosh and p-surge it's really really helping the prediction
3: yeah, I'll add that one of the things that that's helped with the structure is, you know, obviously when we have storms in the western part of the basin, we've got the ability to have aircraft reconnaissance in there, and and for a long time the aircraft data was really just sort of used by the human forecaster for our own analysis. You know, we could see what the peak winds are, what the radius of maximum winds were, the radius of the 34 knot winds, but now that data is actually getting into the models. Uh, you know, the H-Wharf's assimilating the TDR data, it's assimilating the dropsons, the the, high, the HD obs from the flight level winds. Uh, the drop sons that are getting into the GFS. So there's more and more data that's helping to give us some insights into how that structure is going to evolve. Even within that sort of critical watch warning timeframe, you think out to like three days. And that's another reason why that 60 hour forecast point is so helpful. You know, we're not really looking to put more deterministic forecast information out there just for its own sake. But the fact that if you have a system that's going to uh, you know, reach land between 48 and 72 hours, now we have the ability to indicate, oh, do we think it's going to strengthen more? Is it going to change size? How's that system going to evolve in that sort of critical pre-watch time frame where you might already be thinking about storm surge? Uh, you know, What meows are you going to look at? People are making evacuation decisions. So so we're, as Jamie said, we're making some strides there. The other thing, too, where the, the, the value of the human forecaster has really been shown is that You know, if you look, we did a a blog post earlier this year where we looked at the uh, NHC track forecast error and the consistency of the forecast at 96 hours compared to the, the GFS, the ECMWF, and the UK MEP models. And the NHC forecast had lower error than any of those individual models, but the forecasts were also more consistent than the models were. And that's, again, the, uh, where the human can really add a lot of value in the track forecast in particular is by sort of maintaining that consistency and continuity from one forecast to the next so we're not just blindly following the models around as they they sort of do their thing.
2: Mike, a good example is the esa because, you know, the models, if they had a, a weaker winds, it seems like there was more of a left bias. And then if there's are stronger winds, it was more of a right bias. Um, you saw the models going back and forth, but if you go back to the NAC forecast, we were right in the middle. So the value—both of you said it—the value of the human is huge. If you—if you add all the, you know, the add up the years of the experience in the building, I think we came up with about 150 years of experience of the, the hurricane specialists and beyond. So um, there, there's a lot that goes into it associated with, with Jamie, what you said with the structure and on Mike. So the models can flip-flop back and forth, but we're blending those where uh, the NAC forecast beats the models every time. So it's something to think about. You can there, There's so much stress over the latest track model that takes the storm somewhere and everybody gets worked up about it. Um, but, but remember, it could flip-flop back and forth, especially during the Genesis phase, when, when there's a lot of error, when it's still weak and the, the models have trouble focusing on what center to, to really um, call it the center to get in the model. You can get some large errors during that genesis phase, so it's, it's definitely, we have enough stress in the hurricane center, at the, in <laughs> at the hurricane season, and and all in the public as well, so it's good not to get focused on on one individual line. We're, we're looking at all that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's
3: a... Go ahead, Bill.
1: Uh, Yeah, so follow on what you're talking about there. I thought the the... Uh... Uh, the way uh, your forecasters were conveying confidence or lack thereof for both Hannah and Isaias was was really valuable because uh, I, I I have trouble explaining sometimes to people the na- nature of the beast computationally why the the cone is what it is. It's not going to fluctuate on your confidence. It's strictly a number numbers game. The other thing I wanted to uh, pick your brains about was uh, uh, what were the clues that helped you. Uh, uh, ascertain the baroclinic interaction that allowed for the much stronger winds after landfall from East because that, that, that was just beautiful how it played out, not for the people that lost trees and whatnot, but the, from a forecast standpoint, I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite that good.
3: Yeah, I think that one thing that's helped is, you know, I think our just – human recognition of those types of events has increased in the last few years. I actually was thinking about that during East Since like 15 or 20 years ago, this would have been a much more difficult type of transition to forecast. I think part of it is, is credit goes to the global models, which can really handle that sort of transition when you have that tropical cyclone interacting with the baroclinic type forcing. And you could see the wind gusts and the wind field in the GFS and in the ECMWF sort of were really pointing at that sort of structural change and, and that that widespread uh, sort of damaging wind event that was going to going to uh you know uh, going to manifest itself over the mid-atlantic and into into the northeast so i think you know our awareness of that and you know coordinating it with the local offices we were able to really kind of paint that picture and and sort of hit that and that was one thing we were st- thinking about from the messaging perspective is how do you how do you convey that you know Yeah, there's a tropical storm warning in effect, but that covers a really wide range of conditions all the way from, you know, 40 mile per hour winds up to basically something that's almost a hurricane. And to convey the sort of the high confidence and the widespread nature of that event, and we sort of tried to message that, that we started mentioning the trees, the power issues that were going to potentially happen there. And so... I think that you know some of it's just recognition some of it's better modeling and and the ability and the confidence to sort of indicate that in the forecast you know we increase the wind gusts that we typically forecast up higher than we we normally would have and again trying to capture that and and help the wfos message that at the local level
2: you know mike and bill what i I was thinking about this too about the messaging part of it, it 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 just reminded me when you both were talking how we always talk about every storm is different what another example that, you know, some of the questions kept coming in about, well, I don't understand. It's over the land. Why isn't it weakening? So every storm is so different. You, you, you have that, you have the trough, you have an upper jet that's providing an exit region for this thing to continue to breathe and, and maintain its strength. So this is just another example. When you were talking, I was thinking about every storm is so different. And then listening to those specific impacts, it becomes so important.
1: Yeah, I think on the, mes- the we probably need to work on the messaging some more, right? Because uh, apparently a lot of people were missing the fact that we were forecasting higher gusts. the questions I was getting from family and folks I still communicate with up and down the east Coast were surprised about the gusts so i don't know if there's a better way to it, we, we focus so much on the sustained wind from a it's our verification uh, field and all that. I think we need to uh, give some thought as to well it's the gusts that are doing the big damage. Maybe we should figure out a way to message that better. Any thoughts?
3: Yeah, we actually did mention. You know, we were trying to do that in our key messages with the hurricane force gusts, and I, I certainly tried to mention it in some of the briefings I did. But yeah, it's it is. There is a big focus, especially but just with users, everybody sort of hones in on that sustained wind, and uh, but the fact that the gusts are going to be, again, like you said, causing the damage. I think is, is something we need to we need to try to do a better job on, especially in these types of higher end gust situations uh, where they're going to be more impactful. I think the other part too is the rain bands as well you start looking at
2: you know communicating you know so many people focus just on that center and you know you start looking at the, the rain bands i don't know you know 50 100 miles away and, and the, the wind the hurricane force gusts and those rain bands plus the tornado threat the tornado threat was was significant you know we saw the tornadoes in, in north carolina and and to communicate uh, those continuing up you know, into, into Virginia, then eventually getting, you know, into New York. I mean, it's, it was interesting to see uh, those rain bands so strong and just to see the, the line of the curled storms uh, extending from land out into the Atlantic. That's something else we just got to constantly communicate. Don't, don't just focus on that center. Look at these rain bands. I mean, I've seen so many storms. You have too, Bill, over the years. All of us have, you know, where some of the highest rain totals in some cases and a lot of the damage occurs in some of those rain bands well away from the center.
1: Yeah, Harvey's Harvey all of Harvey's excessive rain in the Houston area was was not from the core; it was from the outer rain bands. Uh, I was really impressed with. Uh, 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 I was mainly following uh, the Wilmington Forecast Office on their handling of the tornado warnings. They were on top of that. we we've, we've got I think we've got a pretty good documentation of what to look for in radar signatures and the, the need to jump on those real quick because they're short lived. Well, do you got any idea yet how many tornadoes this IES may have spawned?
3: I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it was, I mean, I know there were a lot, there were probably on the order of 100 warnings, if not more, but I'm not sure of the exact count. I can try to find it while we're still talking and see if I can provide it.
1: Yeah, probably, it probably awaits the reports you'll get back from the field offices after they've had a chance to survey it. I, I, I've i forgotten, too, i would looked at the storm reports but then you got to sift through and make sure you discount ones that aren't related to the storm uh this the storm surge aspects uh any surprises from these on 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 how the storm surge uh, materialized from the uh, nature of the storm that made landfall
4: it actually um it, you know, it was a relatively well-behaved event from a storm surge perspective the, the water went of where we you know we're predicting it um to go um and you, you know we reached out early to the the hardest hit areas in in um in south carolina and north carolina so um, that that part went really well um the wea part or or you know the part that makes your cell phone go off with a, a message um went um really well because we're, we're still in the process of rolling out the, the wea alarms for storm surge um, so this was sort of our, our first chance to we'll test some of those improvements on, on that side. And, and that, that seemed to go really well. We got screen captures from cell phones um, and seemingly, you know, as soon as we hit the send button, you know, it, it, it kind of rolled out relatively quickly. So, I mean, I was really pleased with, with how things went and so far. It looks like the peak surge, the peak depth was over in Myrtle beach, um, which is sort of surprising, I think to people, the peak depth, um, but the peak the peak violence um, was over in, um, uh, what is that, Brunswick County, I think, Brunswick County, North Carolina, because in that case, the, wind, the waves were coming with it. And so if you've seen that sort of drone footage, um, you know, it's a bit more impressive looking from, uh, you know, shoving things around like sand and cars and stuff. Um, but it, it looks like the, the highest depth was, was over in, um, in, in South Carolina and Myrtle Beach.
1: Wow yeah i wasn't aware of that i i had some friends that uh, live in brunswick uh, county there and they were they were saying that's the worst uh, storm surge event they've had since uh, hurricane hazel back in 1954.
4: yeah because brunswick county is kind of east east west oriented at least along the coastline they tend to uh, for the recurving storms like the storms that kind of come up and recurve um they really don't get the right you know angle of approach or Okay. in this case this one was just you know went right up in there pretty much unabated um and, and hit them not quite at dead high tide but close enough i mean it was by that point the 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 you know cake was baked and so um it it worked worked over brunswick county pretty good with the waves
3: bill just to follow up on the tornado side so far there have been 35 tornadoes from Isaias uh, confirmed all the way from North Carolina up to uh, you know, New Jersey, mid-Atlantic states, and interestingly, seven of them were EF2s or 3s, so pretty high-end uh, tornado, uh, tornadoes for a TC environment, which maybe isn't surprising given the strength of the wind field that, that was going on, yeah. you know, especially as you got up into the mid-Atlantic states.
1: Yeah, I was watching the, the, the of course, the aircraft, but then also the the uh, uh, bad wind profiles off the radars there, and there was a hellacious amount of shear between the surface and 5,000 feet.
3: Well, you even saw in the uh, you know the the last flight into Isaias before it made landfall, um, you know, sampled some of those exceptionally strong winds up at 10,000 feet. There were winds of 125 knots or so, but they were not mixing effectively down to the surface. There was a very thin stable layer just in the last few, you know, meters between the, uh, you know, right down to, you got to the ocean surface, you could see it in several drop zones where the wind speed dropped off 25 or 30 knots and like five millibars down to the, to the surface. So there were really strong winds aloft that, you know, and the SFMR winds peaked out in that sort of 75 knot range or so. So that's, that's, you know, well, will to, to take a look at it all in the post analysis, but there was a lot going on there. Uh, some really strong uh, signatures at flight level, maybe some sort of mesovortex that the aircraft sampled through, and you could clearly see it on the Wilming- on the uh, radar data from Wilmington, and uh, I guess
1: probably would have been the Columbia
3: or Charleston radar as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and warhead when it got to
4: really speaks to um, you know Recon has been distilled down to like central pressure and you know peak. Peak winds on a leg, um, usually flight level or or Smurf winds on a leg, but there's really a lot of human um, analysis that has to go into to that. And that case he's talking about was really, really, really complicated, and the forecasters had to do a lot of thinking on their feet and I think the experience um, you know really paid off in in that case because otherwise your natural tendency would be to assume that those winds either were mixing down or were going to mix down at some point which would have pushed our intensity uh, much too high in that case
1: yeah so you kind of think it was a a a meso vortex rather than any uh, larger scale function that was causing those ones were at least 30 knots higher than what I saw in the model soundings
3: yeah, it's possible. I mean, the other thing too that we noticed was the press. The central pressure really wasn't right. What you would have expected to see for a system with flight level winds of that intensity, the the central pressure was actually kind of flat as it approached the coast. But, you know, the the global models did a pretty good job of showing Isaias was going to strengthen in those last 12 hours before landfall. It, I mean it was a really challenging storm sort of for its entire lifespan. I'm sort of thinking about Dorian last year, how it was very challenging from Genesis to track and intensity and track were sort of tightly coupled together and Isaias, they were as well. Uh, but, you know, as the system weakened off of Florida due to the shear, you know, the center became exposed, the system weakened pretty quickly. And on and the East coast of Florida, you know, with, because of the westerly shear, all the weather was displaced to the East. It really wasn't a lot in the way of imp- direct impacts along the Florida East coast. But you could see in the GFS, the European, the global models, the hurricane models were all you know, all suggesting there was going to be this re-intensification up to hurricane strength. And we were able to, you know, to, to forecast that and put the hurricane watch out in the warning, Even though we had a weakening storm at the time, we were confident enough to say, hey, this is going to come back and try to get that word out for folks up there. So it was a really interesting event in a lot of different ways, a very sort of challenging system.
1: Cool. Yeah, it refreshed my memory. Well, it was like... Uh, I, I think I remember it was at least forty-eight hours in advance that we were catching up on that uh, re-intensification aspect. Is that correct, or?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think we put out the hurricane watch. We decide, you know, we ended up going with an intensity forecast up around sixty to sixty-five knots. I think that was on Sunday afternoon. We put the hurricane watch out, and then with the with the hurricane warning. I guess it would have been on monday my days of the week might be off here but yeah it was at least the the day before we did the watch so you know there was some indication that it was going to restrengthen there was a lot of uncertainty there too because if the center had, had sort of come totally sheared off from the convection we could have had something like ken mentioned a weaker system moving farther west over the florida peninsula and uh something that might not have come back so it, you sort of had to wait and see if it was going to, you know, sort of maintain some sort of vertical integrity before you would be confident in, in showing it coming back to hurricane strength.
2: You know, what was challenging too, Mike, was the fact that the storm was so tilted. People were looking at the the radar and seeing and seeing something at, you know, the rotation of the storm 10,000, ten thousand, twelve thousand feet up, uh, and with this exposed center, it was it was. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, a little difficult at times to say, okay, that's what you're seeing. But on the surface, there there is a center yeah. there, and that's where you're seeing the big winds. That was tricky, as the storm was
3: so tilted. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and you could see the difference between where the aircraft would fix it up at five or ten thousand feet, and what you would see in the visible imagery, or seeing data from the dropsons or the other surface observations.
1: Cool. Switching gears on you here, Hannah. What uh, what lessons learned? Do you, uh, can you convey to us uh, to date on HANA?
3: Models are really bad at forecasting genesis in the Gulf of Mexico. That's not anything new. But HANA was a system where that's, again, where the, the, the experience factor of a human forecaster knowing, okay, this is an environment where cyclogenesis likes to happen, northwestern Gulf, close to the coast. Ten systems tend to either form or spin up as they get close to the coast there. And uh, the global models had really very little signal of a a cyclone developing at all, much less something that would go on and become a hurricane. So I think we were able to latch on to that uh, formation potential and and sort of outperform the model guidance there a little bit. And uh, and then, again, realizing that, again, in the early stages, the track forecast, uncertainty is pretty high. So you weren't sure how long the system was going to have to spend over water. If it had taken a little more northerly track, it might have come up on shore farther up the texas coast had less time over the warm water and then when you get in that situation where those storms start to move west southwest that's a real strong synoptic pattern for for quick strengthening and we were lucky if hannah had had another 12 or 18 hours over water we could have certainly been dealing with something that could have been a major hurricane at landfall
1: yeah I just saw the color go out of tim's face at that comment <laughs> the uh yeah you know, we've had so many of these uh, fire up right off the coast. Of course, in the Houston area, Alicia is a poster child for that. Its entire life cycle was less than 60 hours. And Imelda, uh, you had one advisory on it, and it was on land. And uh, and even Harvey, for that matter, there wasn't much to it until it got in the middle of the uh, Western Gulf before it fired up. So... Uh, Yeah, I think
3: that's just a a good reminder that you can have systems form and rapidly strengthen within two or three days of potential impacts. And again, that's just a reminder to people you're not going to have, it's not always going to be the Irmas and the Florences that you have seven to ten plus days to watch, you know, crawl all the way across the Atlantic. And in fact, you know, Ken's shown this slide before, all of the Category 5 hurricanes that have made landfall in this country have all basically been two or three days before were low end to moderate tropical storms relatively close to land that underwent rapid intensification basically as they were making landfall and so those very strongest systems are going to be ones that are sort of on that development uptick uh, very close to land if you're going to get uh, get affected by that
1: yeah i, I use that to when i have to fight back against people that insist they have to have seven days lead time to make an action on a storm so you're not going to get it right uh, we're nowhere close to forecasting uh, accurately genesis that far in advance, much less an R.I. up to a Cat 4 or 5 hurricane in that short term. And, uh, so that yeah, sure. leads to the question, what, what kind of feedback are you guys getting on, the, on your lead time needs this year?
3: It's a good question. I think, you know, I think we know, you know, I was gonna tie this into the potential tropical cyclone advisories, which we've used a fair bit, um, you know, several times a year over the last three or four seasons. And we used them for a while for Isaias to get get the watches and warnings up for the Caribbean islands of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, uh, and and really get the warning out for that. So I think that that itself has helped. It's helped us gain, you know, a day and a half or maybe a not quite a day of lead time on average 12 to 18 hours over what we would have done in the past if we had had to wait for a system to go ahead and undergo genesis or or sort of maybe call something a tropical depression or tropical storm if it was borderline and we weren't quite comfortable with it but knowing that we had to get watches and warnings out now we can get those out in a timely fashion but i think there's a need for there's certainly a need for things at longer lead time um you know i think I think we've heard from some partners that they would like the, the PTC advisories, you know, earlier than the watch lead time. But you know, then you get into a situation where you're having to make a forecast for a system that doesn't really exist yet, and you can see that in ESAES and some of these other systems. If you start those advisories too soon, before there's any kind of semblance of a center forming, the forecast could really be inconsistent and really move around a lot, and you would have to maybe put up watches and warnings or, or you know, sort of. Uh, show an area under threat that might be very different from what actually materializes even a day or so later when you actually have a center forming so there's sort of this push and pull between you know we know people want longer lead time but at what cost of false alarms and more uncertainty are you willing to live with that and that's um that's a question we're you know looking to, for feedback on and we want to talk to our partners about but that's that's sort of on the wind side i think in terms of watches and warnings, I think we were sort of in a pretty good spot with watch warning lead times. I don't think we would want to have to go out too much farther with those, because then you're putting the watches and warnings out so far in advance of the event, that people are kind of like, well, where is it, you know? And it's sort of, but and and I know, yeah, you know, I can let Jamie talk about the surge in, but there's, you know, certainly people are making evacuation decisions well in advance of when we have real-time surge products these days. So I know that's a, that's a push too
4: yeah there's a huge demand because we evacuate in this country largely due to the you know surge threat um there's a huge demand to push the surge guidance out longer to support um clearance times which in most places usually are about two to three days it's usually what what most areas there's some parts of the country that you know have clearance times up near four days um so we're we're actively working on that um we're, we're scheduled for a pretty substantial upgrade in um our slosh and p-search modeling in, in somewhere around 2022, 2023 to, to get us there. Um, and we're experimenting in-house and it, you know, it, it's, it's really promising. The other thing too is we're, we're having conversations with emergency managers over the simple answer is just to demand longer lead times, right? That's the simple, easy answer. But I think a better, healthier discussion is longer lead times and changes in evacuation protocols the way we evacuate so getting more creative with how we evacuate things like um phased evacuations for example um, and other creative uh, techniques that emergency managers are trying to help bring down the clearance times a little bit and sort of meet us in the middle with respect to extending the predictions out and and that's that happy compromise that mike was talking about this sort of tug is push and pull between just simply extending the lead times, you know, probably won't get us where we wanna be because it comes with, um, you know, sacrifices in the sense of old, potentially over alarming or over warning. Um, but it, the emergency managers now meeting us in the middle, I think is, is the perfect blend of, of those two coming together.
1: That's interesting. They went through, after the Rita debacle here in the Southeast Texas on evacuation Uh, They uh, redesigned the scheme to to be very vocal about using. They had a suggested phase evacuation, but it wasn't official, so it didn't work. So they put one in place that had a lot of rigor to uh, load very closely during Ike. And because of that, I think they've been able to hold the the clearance times uh, under 48 hours.
4: Yeah, and that's the key. I think if we can get the clearance time in, in, in all locations at 72 or less, um, that would be a huge societal improvement. I mean, we've got, I think the worst clearance time is 93 hours. And Mike, what's your traditional error at at, at day four in track or something like that?
3: Oh, on the track side, um, you know, we're basically at day four now. We're somewhere around 140, 150 nautical miles on average. So.
4: Right. so i mean if you're going to pull the trigger at 93 hours um the range of consequences on that error bar that he just mentioned you could ask you know hundreds of thousands of people to evacuate and shut down industry and then barely get you know a rain ban with with that type of uh error bar so if we can pull it down to 72 um for most locations or three days i really think it will help substantially with evacuation improvements because if you ask somebody to evacuate and then they barely get a rain ban and, and no wind i mean what do you think the evacuation compliance is going to be the next storm it's probably going to be miserably low for, for that individual and james yeah, the i'm sorry no, i you. was just going to say
3: if you can get it down to three <laughs> days you know the average track error of three days is now down below 100 nautical miles on average so you're getting into more of a a, a range where you're going to see at least some impacts uh, more right. more than likely for systems that are you know basically headed towards an area at that time frame
4: plus, sure. plus you're potentially shaving I mean, it's a it's a rough math so I mean don't quote me on this but you're shaving I mean 150 to 100 shaving 50 miles of potential evacuations off right that's in certain parts of the country that are densely populated which is most of our coastline um that's that's a huge societal ramification not just for the community that is asked to evacuate but all of the downstream you know when the people are leave they they go somewhere else and, and, and put um, pressure on infrastructure and shelters and hotels and resources you know downstream so um, if we can get down to 72 um, i think it will have a huge impact on how the nation um, evacuates from a hurricane
1: Cool. Did you did you have something to add there, Ken? Or
2: no, I was going to have Jamie talk on. I think what he was already talking about there. We always we always talk about you know having the evacuations and having a forecast that causes evacuations. I was going to have Jamie comment on just the the part of this that doesn't get as much of attention. Um, the reason not to evacuate is just as important. And and a lot of people get hurt in, in the evacuation process itself. So I was just I think Jamie, you're headed there, but that that is a that's a huge
4: factor And Dorian comes to mind. Well I mean let's let's play it out for the average customer. You know, family with small children, they're asked to evacuate, they get in the car and they go drive somewhere. Traffic is miserable, gridlock traffic, run out of fuel. The batteries on the iPad in the back run out. The kids are miserable. I mean, it's a, it's a miserable experience for, for everyone. And then if, if nothing happens, do you think that person is gonna evacuate the next time? Most likely not. And so you can end up harming people or putting them at risk to future storms merely through over evacuating. And so um, we we started this over the last couple of years where we're trying to quantify the evacuation stopped or prevented, uh, not only through the forecast improvements that Mike sort of hammered out for you earlier, um, but the actual decision support that goes with that. I mean, we're on the phone with emergency managers um, agonizing with them over these decisions that they have to make uh, regarding evacuation. And then Dorian, we stopped millions at least the analysis shows we stopped millions of of evacuations that would have been ordered without um th- these forecast improvements and this decision support and while we haven't cranked the numbers yet for is what we've heard from emergency managers um in in florida and south carolina is we stopped unnecessary evacuations again we don't have the numbers yet but i mean that's some you know, that's some densely populated territory in there, especially in northeast um, uh, Florida. You know, you start pulling evacuations even for zones A and B, and you'll, you know, run up some big numbers quick.
2: Yeah, that's what I wanted to do, Bill, is you, you tie what Mike is saying with the accuracy of the, the forecast, the 60-hour point, the structure. All, all that accuracy goes into being able to to help with the storm surge forecast and as a result, there's there's real-life benefits on the ground, evacuation, not evacuating, being able to target evacuate. I mean, just the, the better we can do, the, the better science that so we can provide the emergency managers and the better decisions that could be made.
1: Well, and- I, I think
3: the IDSS is, is an important part of that that Jamie alluded to. It, it really helps folks to make more nuanced evacuation decisions than maybe was being done five or 10 years ago when it was just like, OK, we're going to pull zones A through D, and everybody's just going to go. And now, you know, the forecasts are a little better, the, the P-surge is a little better, there's higher resolution, you know, um, you have, uh, moms and meows that go into the evacuation zones, I think, are being drawn with more detail than they probably were previously. So there's, there's the ability to do more nuanced decision making in these events that, again, has those benefits that Jamie and Ken alluded to, where you, you can slice it uh, in a better way to, to prevent unnecessary evacuations
4: that's great i I mean just look at ease i mean the 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 traditional approach was cat one right forecast to hit florida think back 10 years ago elevate it by one category on the saffron simpson scale that's automatic zones a and b Hmm. the old way um yet i'm not i haven't heard of any large-scale evacuations uh, along the florida east coast and we didn't issue a storm surge warning for the entire stretch of the Florida um, East Coast, um, and I mean, I I've been at the Hurricane Center for what 21 years now, and I can't imagine us ever doing something like that in the past because there was, I mean, the hurricane was forecast to brush the coast, and there were hurricane warnings up for portions of the Florida coast. So that that restraint is um, is painful as it was for both Mike and I. I think we both lost about 10 years of our life on that one. Um, it really had a huge um, societal benefit.
1: It'll Constant
2: communication, people. right? I mean, I think at the IDSS, the briefings, you know, to the the county or parish level, the state. Uh, federal level i mean it's almost constant communication i mean everything from text messages to phone calls to to just constantly giving the latest information out because everybody's paying attention to it and trying to make the best decision possible and there's a lot writing on every one of these storms so uh, the IDSS port part of this is is just absolutely huge
1: it's, it's very important too the the thing you're gaining by doing it this way is you get a cadre of of experienced emergency managers who have been pushed to the edge and have heeded the advice and held the held the line on not evacuating. Uh, they have to deal with the constant churn of the elected like hall, but they'll be able to speak to the elected officials more confidently because they have more confidence in what you're giving them.
4: And, and that's that's a point that nobody ever talks about, Bill. So thanks for bringing it up. The, you know, I guess the way we used to do things, um, probably rightly so, you know, 10 years ago because the forecast uncertainty was so big is, is you just sort of, you know, cast this big wide net and, you know, you know, like Mike said, you know, just everybody goes, just blanket everyone goes. But by sort of pushing a little bit now um, and, and, and taking, taking things right to the edge, I think is helping the emergency manager become much, much savvier about our products in the in the status of science and more comfortable i've sensed just in the last couple of years a greater comfort level with using our, our forecast products uh, like the wind timing the new wind timing tool and things like that i mean just i think pe- people are getting more and more comfortable with these really difficult decisions
2: and something behind the scenes that most people don't get to see is i don't know how many over the years of have- come to the Hurricane Center for uh, training. Thousands have been trained um, in, in the FEMA courses that, that we host um, at, at the Hurricane Center. And internationally, we bring the international uh, meteorologists and emergency managers in as well, as our responsibility extends beyond the U.S. And having those classes, going through exercises, talking about these things, it really helps. And I did want to comment that I think it was uh, amazing uh, this year to see some elected officials in our class, and, and I'll never forget them coming up to me on the side in the hallway going, wow, I didn't know so much went into this. And I think getting them in here, exposing them to all this, um, doing you know, things like this, what we're doing right now is constantly talking about our products and services, and I think this this kind of thing really
1: helps. I, I assume you're already on how to do this, how to do that training virtually next year on the assumption we're not outside the covid problem yet
3: yeah we're having some we actually have a meeting i think later today to start you know we've had some meetings to talk about sort of outreach for and what it's going to look like this coming off season so we've got some you know decision points to make and contingencies for you know say we we were able to get the fema classes in in house this past year because all that happened sort of before covid uh, exploded everywhere but um, yeah we may try to do some things remotely. Um, you know, there's, there's downside to that. But on the upside, you can reach a lot of people at one time if you do something remotely, too. So we're, we're going to work with uh, EMI folks at FEMA and, and again, try to, try to do the best we can. We got a tremendous amount of outreach done this season, I think, especially given the circumstances and the fact that, you know, the, the COVID shutdown sort of happened right in the peak of our outreach season. So everything, including meetings and conferences, got canceled and then sort of got rescheduled virtually. And we were able to really do a lot. And I think we learned a lot about the, the technical side of how to do it and how to, how to make it as interactive as you can. I mean, you're never gonna replace in-person sort of training and the, the benefits that come from being you know, sharing that physical space with people. But I think we've, we've got some best practices to, and ways to go forward if, as long as we need to in this sort of uh, constrained environment.
2: Yeah, just a quick plug for Hurricanes at Home. I mean, you know, from Dan, Robbie and John and others, I mean, just the, the group getting together going, wow, all these kids are at home you know wouldn't it be neat if we did something for them at home so hurricanes at home uh just just a big what a great effort that they uh took that and was able to deliver some outreach and deliver some education straight into people's homes to help the teachers out across the country i, th- I thought that was absolutely amazing and they pulled that off this year it was a huge success
1: that's fantastic I, i'm too old to learn new tricks i guess the biggest thing i have uh uh, I've done several uh, preparedness things this year also, all obviously remotely, is I'm so tuned to looking at the uh, body language from the audience to see if I'm hitting the right chord or not. And that's – I can't figure it out from the little window panes. <laughs> well, Tim – I've been, I've been hogging the show here. You probably got some questions from our audience.
0: Uh, it's been fascinating. Great questions and great insights to share with everybody. We're getting a lot of questions online. Let me start with this one from Rob Fowler. He says, what are your biggest concerns due to COVID? That means less commercial aircraft flying overseas. That means less data ingested. Is that a concern for you all?
2: I don't know, Mike, I, I think one thing that we, we do have, we've been able to, we've got the data from the satellite, which really helps. But I think you look at ESA-ES, Mike, Mike draws some, Mike works with the modelers and, and draws some areas where we could get some extra balloon releases. So during esa EAS, um, the weather forecast offices were putting up two extra balloon releases uh, a day. And, you know, from that and other aircraft data that we have with the hurricane hunters, we, there, there's, there's still quite a bit of data that's getting into the models.
3: Yeah, we're able to, we had the G4 fly some uh, synoptic surveillance missions around East and the Southwest Atlantic there, and we did request the, the special radio songs, actually probably over the eastern, most of the eastern third of the country, basically the Mississippi River eastward and even up into Canada. So we were, you know, we try to throw as much data as we can at these types of systems uh, in terms of, uh, of, of, you know, getting a better handle on the analysis and of the storm itself and then also the features that are going to control how it how it
0: evolves. Casper Gregory asked a, good, a question about the human element in an intensity forecast. We've talked a lot about margin of error in, in track forecast, but in intensity forecast, and I could talk about Hannah, how on Friday we were talking about a 65 mile per hour tropical storm and, and 36 hours later, we had a 90 mile per hour hurricane making landfall and dropping lots of rain. So he wants to know how the, how the margin of error is on intensity forecasting.
3: Yeah, you know, for a long time, the standard line was, you know, the track forecasts have been getting better, but the intensity forecasts haven't. Uh, but, you know, in this last decade, we actually have seen the average intensity forecast errors come down for the first time. You know, on average, you know, they came down, say, at 48 hours, they've gone down from, you know, 15 knots down to 12. You know, and that doesn't seem like a lot, but, but you know, you are making some substantial improvements there. There are still struggles with rapid intensification, the model guidance, is still not able to really reliably indicate when that's going to happen. We have more tools. We have better situational awareness as a forecaster to know what, when you see a certain structure happen, or you see or your certain structures start to evolve, and you know the environment's favorable. You can you get a sense that okay, rapid strengthening is possible. But the 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 the, the forecast metric is pretty punishing. You know, and you're making a deterministic intensity forecast. If you forecast you know 85 knots at 36 hours, and, but it's only 75 knots, but then it's 85 knots six hours later, you don't get any credit for that. So the average errors really suffer because you're making a deterministic intensity forecast. So, so we get the trend right in some situations. It's just we don't get the trend, the details of the trend right. The, the storm usually strengthens faster than we think, peaks sooner, and then starts to weaken, and we end up showing a trajectory that's a little smoother, and we kind of, we kind of end up chasing the peak a little bit. But getting the details of those timing and when you're gonna say get an eyewall replacement cycle or when rapid intensification is gonna exactly start is, is really challenging. So we're we're better at it. And if we can get a little better at the rapid intensification, which results in the really large forecast errors we tend to rack up, then that'll help drive those average errors down a little more uh, as we go forward. But the human definitely has a role there in interpreting the guidance. And understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the models uh you know and and their rapid intensity predictors and then also just recognizing what the structure of the storm looks like from either microwave imagery or radar data or aircraft or
0: whatever you might have to see if it's going to be able to take advantage of that sort of favorable environment meteorologist Gil simmons has a great question that i think you're all going to have an answer to and he says do you gentlemen have any critique or recommendations for people like me parentheses tv meteorologist to get your message out to viewers any insight? Take turns, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let Ken start with that one. Oh, no, it's a, it's a, I love the question. You
2: know, and I think I'll say this. Look, I mean, 20, it goes fast. i 26 years in the weather service, 28 years in this business. I think the relationship's stronger now than it's ever been. I'll make that comment. I think I think when we when we do the interviews, we're aggressive with with getting into the markets and talking about those key points. I, I think it's evident that we're all in this together because we're all trying to save lives and get the word out. So my my comment is, I think it's better than ever. I think it's when when we're all on the same same uh, side and communicating a similar message. I think it's easier for people to make the decision because the message isn't conflicted. If you have similar information, it's easier to make that that life saving decision that people need to make.
3: Yeah, I think, again, from my perspective, it's focusing on the hazards. Um, there's so much focus on the details of the storm, the category, whether the peak winds have come up or down five or 10 miles an hour in the last six hours and sort of these sort of detail level changes and, and you can just hit the hazards, hit the wind, the storm surge, the rain, uh, you know, get people ready for what they're going to experience regardless of what the storm's exact characteristics are going to be like uh, at the time it, it comes near them. And, and again, People have to prepare for what's, you know, sort of a reasonable worst case scenario in these situations. And you have to be prepared for the fact that not everybody's gonna get those very worst winds or that very worst storm surge, but uh, people need to be ready for that.
2: And there was a focus on hurricane or not a hurricane, right, Mike? It was
3: interesting. Um, oh, yeah, 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 sure. When you have a system that's sort of straddling these sort of man-made thresholds we've imposed on nature between calling something a tropical storm or a hurricane or a major hurricane or whatever, uh, there's so much focus on that. And in reality, there's very little difference between a 60-knot tropical storm and a 65- or even 70-knot hurricane. And most of the time, we're not good enough to really tell the difference between the two. Even with ob- the observations we have, we're good to, with only about 10%. So um, it's it's one of those situations where people tend to focus in on those sort of like detail-level aspects, when in reality, it's sort of the bigger picture we need to, to hone in on.
4: I would recommend um, the media take advantage take full advantage of the NHC media poll. Ken how many um, media hits did you do during these ES? We
2: did 149 live during ESAES.
4: Wow. And if um and what's interesting about covid, you know we always talk about covid from the negative side but it has spurred this, this entire new innovation with respect to you know hacking old problems in new ways. It's just great. Everybody liked for me to tell inside NHC stories. i will going tell one. There was this one point I walked feet um, right away um, by Ken doing media interviews, and he had his he had his laptop sitting on what looked like four or five books to get it up to the proper height, and he was doing some interview um, with. With you know, like uh, either Skype or, or you know some sort of uh, some sort of online type type tool. So if the technology has historically been limiting with respect to satellite time and that sort of stuff, um, that's no more. I mean, uh, Ken pretty he work, he'll work around any sort of uh, impediment. If you ask for an interview, he's going to find a way to do it. Um, I would say take take full advantage of the fact that uh, Ken is is ready willing and able to uh, go online with you and, and talk through what the forecast means or what we're thinking in a, in a given circumstance that's
0: terrific good information i hope that answered the question i think it did and following in the covid vein uh, mike mike phillips michael phillips asked a question about the graphic, Ken, that you showed early on showing everybody that's been impacted by a tropical storm or hurricane watcher warning so far this year. Is there any concern about disaster fatigue, you know, and after COVID and now everybody, almost everybody on the coast has been under some sort of watcher warning? Uh, and how do you continue that's to get true. the message out, you know, effectively in this so I think special it's, time? I think, it's, I think it's things
2: like we're doing here. I mean, just really being... You know, talking about it and showing what we have left in the season, encouraging everybody to prepare, and I think it's just uh, the honesty of a program like this, and, and and talking about what we do well and the challenges that we have, and we have a ways to go. We can do this together. Um, I think those messages have to continue, whether it's social media programs like this. I mean, we're 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 taking steps to keep ourselves safe, even at uh, you know the, the Hurricane Center. So I mean, um, we're doing it here. Um, you know, but just encourage everyone to do the same thing. We got a ways to go, but I, I think it's uh, the more we can talk like
3: this, I think the better. I think we just have to be open and honest about the challenges that people face, and and remind people that you know the situation where they live in June may be different from where what it's going to be related to COVID when the next storm comes in September. So again, it's just pay attention to that local situation your local emergency managers those are the people that are going to tell you what you need to do to to be prepared for the hurricane in the COVID environment that where it is where you live
0: there are a whole bunch of terrific just comments coming in on the feed as well so i encourage people to just kind of look through those comments and see what folks are saying, you know, our, our friend Barry in Brownsville, Barry Goldsmith says, Talk about the duration of the winds during a storm, not just what the maximum winds are. A lot of people are saying, Thanks for the gust information because that's really important, but also the duration of those winds during the storm. And, you know, talk a little bit about that because, you know, a one hour, 50 mile per hour duration wind is a lot more than an eight hour, 50 mile per hour duration. Yeah, yeah that, that's a huge difference, yeah. right, Mike? I mean, just the longer you have those winds,
2: the more time that that is to start doing some of that structural damage, the tree damage, the more time you get the rain to saturate the soil, et cetera. So duration makes a big difference.
3: Yeah, although, as we saw in Isaias, you know, the, the the really strong winds, say, in, you know, New Jersey New York City area were only lasted an hour or two. And when you have those really strong gusts, that, that can sort of, if they're strong enough, that the duration almost doesn't matter as much for the very high end gust potential, especially when you're talking about tree and power infrastructure issues and in areas that don't see those kinds of winds with leaves out on the trees like they typically do in the Northeast, you know, in that kind of case. So, yeah, it's a combination, I think, of duration and intensity. Uh, and again, every storm's different. Some storms have tremendously large wind fields. I think back to Irma here in South Florida, it felt like we had sustained tropical storm-force winds for like 36 hours. <laughs> you know, it just keeps going and going and going and going. And then on the other hand, you have something like an Isaias or a different type of storm that's sort of this or Wilma. You think of how fast Wilma went through South Florida, but there was tremendous wind damage, again, because it was a high enough end event that the, the winds, even though they were relatively short duration, you had this big storm moving really fast, still caused a lot of damage.
0: We've got time for just a couple more. We've, been, we've had you guys for an hour, and I really appreciate you dedicating so much time to this this morning. One very specific question and then, and then a general question to maybe wrap up on. Uh, Rich Johnson wants to know if there were any winds of sustained hurricane force on land from Esaias over eastern North Carolina. Uh, so a lot of times the strongest winds didn't mix down to the surface. So a specific question about Esaias
3: yeah i don't i haven't seen any observations of sustained hurricane force winds yet from north carolina but um i'd have to we'll have to go back and, and check that as we go through the post analysis um i'm not i'm not sure i saw anything and again a thing we noticed, too, is, you know, for a lot of the land-based observing sites, when you get into those strong wind regimes, they either fail or the, or the power goes out. So uh, ASOSes and things like that typically don't report those types of winds. We typically get those kinds of winds from things like a weather flow station or some sort of like, uh, you know, meso, mesonet type data that'll, that'll end up having those stronger winds than than sort of your standard observing sites
0: and the final question is just a general question that you know everybody including bill i'd like to jump in on this and just and it's something you touched on early mike um about here we are august the 11th and we're already um, almost up to h the uh, ij storm we're just about there probably but a lot of people have been impacted already nobody prepares like somebody who just got hit by a hurricane um, but a lot of people have already been impacted but it's not over you know we're just at the beginning of the season so talk just for a moment about the importance of preparedness even though you may have already been impacted by a storm yeah i mean i guess i'll start is just you know don't let the
3: the last storm affect your preparation going forward your risk hasn't changed if you were affected by a storm already even if you had were affected by Isaias and you lost power in trees and had you know tremendous impacts to yourself that doesn't mean you can't have those same or even different types of impacts from the storm later this season And if you were an area where you had sort of lower end impacts don't think that that means you can't have a higher end uh, event coming later and don't let a previous storm cause you problems by sort of latching on to that when you're you're making decisions about how to get ready for the next one and again uh, take the time now to get ready get find out the, the most important thing you can do is find out if you live in a storm surge evacuation zone because that's going to form the basis of your entire preparation plan if you're going to have to leave that's a very different situation than if you you know you can stay in your house and ride out a storm at home so i think that's those are the things i would start with find that out find out again with covid think about where you're going to go that's going to be safe sheltering maybe look different in your community you may want to go stay with friends or relatives again try to drive tens of miles not hundreds uh, to, to get to a safe place. And and if you can do that, that evacuation experience that Jamie talked about earlier might not be quite as bad as if you're stuck on an interstate running out of gas in your car because uh, you had to drive 300 miles to try to go somewhere.
2: Anybody else want to comment on that? Yeah, no, just a simple statement. I think, Mike, you covered it. I think a lot of times people, uh, their risk perception is based on their previous experience. And we don't want people uh, really comparing storms, so you got to be real careful with that because just because it didn't happen last time doesn't mean it can, won't happen next time. So just base your base your risk based on the, the real life risk. Know those zones. Know know that you know trees. You know, I, I, so many times we look at these surveys and these damaged termite trees fall down on houses and cars and hurt people. So it's a, it's about that preparation. It's about doing that early. Know your risk and prepare for that risk.
0: Jamie any thoughts before we wrap up about this or anything else
4: I think preparedness is like everything in life you got to constantly strive to get incrementally better and even um this year after uh, and and Ken Ken's gonna laugh because he knows this about me with all the preparation I've done in past years even this year I was working to make the generator um safer the hook up to the house safer and easier to execute and and just constantly trying to find ways to to make things safer and easier and, and better. Incrementally better, I like
0: that, I like that. Everybody I know here, we, we were impacted by a, a hurricane that was, you know, I'm 70 miles inland, my neighbors lost power, I didn't, but they're all going out to buy stuff now to prepare for the next one, because they know what the impact of a, a Category 1 70 miles away can be, so pretty significant. Bill, some final thoughts from you before we wrap up?
1: I kind of think the. yeah, I kind of think the. The uh, already active season with, I think, five direct landfalls and another one close by, and then the forecast for much more, the remainder is maybe enough to overcome the fact that some of the people that have already had one might let their, I don't think they're going to let their guard down. I think they're on pins and needles about it. And uh, final thought is thank you guys so much for uh, spending time with us. It's always great to pick your brains on uh, the latest and greatest in the hurricane problem.
0: Thanks for joining us on Hurricane Center. Produced by the Storm Science Network and made possible by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. You can find other episodes on HurricaneCenterLive.com.